Harry Belafonte. All that said, let's commence today's program talking politics and more with the host of the Shermichael Singleton Show on SiriusXM, Shermichael Singleton, and professor and founding director of the Race, Politics, and Policy Center at George Mason University, Michael Fontroy. I just realized today I have a Michael and a Shermichael, so this should be fun. Shermichael, how are you today, sir? (laughs) I'm doing well, Tavis. Great to be back with you, my friend. And my regards uh, and condolences uh, to the loss of of your friend and a national treasure, uh, Mr. Harry Belafonte. No, I thank you. What are your your initial thoughts about that? I mean, it's one of those things I've been getting messages like crazy over the last 24 hours or so. Uh, and um, everybody has something to say about Harry Belafonte, but mostly what I'm hearing is that his death is is curating all kinds of conversations inside black America about not just the lives that we're living, living, but the legacies that we are leaving. He he accomplished so much in those 96 years. It ought to make the rest of us feel embarrassed uh, to not be. No, absolutely. Yeah, so what, what are your thoughts just initially on, on Michael, on uh, Harry Belafonte? And then we get Michael to answer the same question. Yeah, quickly. Um, you know, I first was introduced to Mr. Belafonte when I was about eight years old growing up in New Orleans from my great-grandfather. He was a West Point military grad. And I'll never forget, I was showing him something about music. And he said, well, let me show you what real music is. Mm-hmm. And he puts on a record of Mr. Belafonte. And I'm like, well, who, in the, you know, who is this guy? What is music? And then we, you know, we sat down uh, in the living room, and he began to, to talk to me about Mr. Belafonte and uh, Sidney Poitier and so many others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it wasn't just about the art, um, Tavis, but for him, he was really trying to um, input in me the importance of doing something reputable beyond just the theatrics of what we see on television. Mm-hmm. And by that, he was trying to say, grandson, if you do become something great, it's not that thing that you want to be remembered by, but it's the difference that you make for the lives of people in our community that's going to make the biggest difference. And as a you know, seven, eight-year-old, I didn't really understand that. But boy, Tavis, today mm-hmm. when I think about those things, man, it means a lot to me today. So that's what his legacy means. It means someone who achieved a lot on screen, but man, what he did for so many lives, many of these lives that people just don't know about, stories that you don't ever hear about, that to me truly represents his legacy. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, Michael Fontre, good to have you back, my friend. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, man. Long time no talk, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, 48 hours. <laughs> good, to so, have you. good to have you back. We didn't get a chance to finish the other day, so I'm glad we got an hour today. Uh, your initial yeah. thoughts about uh, the passing of Harry Belafonte? Uh, it, it's part of the arc of life, right? And, mm-hmm. and we understand that everybody has to transition at some point. But there are a couple of things that come to mind. First, I, I've been thinking a lot about a a friend of mine who worked for Mr. Belafonte for years, and she always referred to him as Mr. B. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. And I could I couldn't I couldn't be more impressed by the impact that he had on her and the and the loyalty that she she gave. And, and service to him and helping him do whatever it was that he needed to do on the publicity side of some of his work. And then I think about something I often tell my students and that there's a difference between a civil rights activist and a civil rights actor. Mm. Right? You got you got some people out here who, who sort of want to be seen as civil rights activists, but really they just acting. Right. Mm. They're not they're not really to go really ready to go to the wall for certain things. That was not Harry Belafonte. He was a man who was uh, dignified, full of integrity, righteousness, and always trying to do the right thing. And for me, 
that kind of role model is in short supply right now. And this is a great opportunity to remind people that um, activism is real. It takes time. It's hard work. But if you do the right thing, to Sir Michael's point, you do leave a legacy that people will finally remember and that you've touched and helped people's lives. And, and so, you know, again, we all transition. But in this case, we tra- we're talking about somebody who transitioned having done something for somebody. And that's really important to me. Yeah. His life, I am certain, uh, I can see the evidence of it already. His life is going to become his afterlife. Uh, and uh, you've now heard what Sir Michael uh, thought about Harry Belafonte and what Michael thought about uh, Harry Belafonte. You've heard what Tavis has thought about Harry Belafonte. But in our third and final hour today, you will hear Harry Belafonte in his own words, uh, curated from any number of conversations he and I have had about a variety of subject matter over uh, my career. And so I look forward to that, that third hour today as we celebrate the life and legacy of Harry Belafonte. Just getting started in this hour, talking politics, and God knows there's a whole lot to talk about. Uh, Joe Biden is, is running for re-election. Uh, Republicans are going crazy and responding to uh, that announcement this week. Uh, there's more news on Tucker Carlson. There's more news on uh, Don Lemon. Just a lot to talk about in this hour. You're listening to Sure Michael and Michael on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we Hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580, but you're listening to Tavis Smiley in conversation with Shermichael and Michael. Shermichael would be Shermichael Singleton, host of the Shermichael Singleton Show on Sirius XM. Uh, and uh, our friend Michael Fontroy of George Mason University. Glad to have them both in this hour. Uh, a lot to talk about. Let me start with this. Um, uh, Michael, since you, were, since you were last here, we were expecting this to happen the next day. Indeed, it did happen. And I, don't need to, I don't need to color this question much more than this for two uh, seasoned uh, political analysts uh, and contributors, but your thoughts on the announcement of uh, Joe Biden, which we expected, of course, running for re-election, but moreover the response to it since he made the announcement, Michael. Your thoughts. Well, it's certainly not a surprise. I, I used my course at George Mason University on the presidency to poll my students periodically and formally mm-hmm. on a variety of things around the president. And I've, I've been doing this for you know, 10, 12 years in this particular class. And I will tell you, I asked my students about this yesterday. And if I were a Democratic strategist, somebody committed to helping to get Joe Biden reelected, I would be concerned Mm. because I will tell you, young people believe that all of these folks are too old to be doing what they're doing, not just Joe Biden. You know, they think everybody over 50 or 60 needs to go sit down somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, if that impacts how they end up voting or not voting, then, then that could impact the election, the electoral result. And so the age question is fair and reasonable. I'm concerned that he's going to be abused by it. But at the same time, I think they've got to figure out a way to deal with it up front. So for me, to answer your question, the, the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, the Republicans are really going to beat, beat him over the head and shoulders about his age, notwithstanding whatever it is that he has to say or whatever it is he's done as president. That's unfortunate, but that's where we are, and, and everybody has to deal with it. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, the likely Republican nominee, at least as of today, is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is just a few years younger. So, 
you know, there's going to be a problem on, on both sides as far as that's concerned. Yeah, so to your point, before I get uh, Michael back in this conversation, it seems to me that if they're both uh, of advanced age, if they are both, shall we say, chronologically gifted, then I don't know that the age factor becomes such an issue. It's not like he's running, it, it, you know, it's not like he's running against somebody, you know, 20 years younger than he is. So I'm not right. sure how that plays out, although I take your point. Uh, but secondly, uh, to your informal poll of your students, let me give you some formal polls, which I know you also follow, given what you do at George Mason as a professor there. Mm-hmm. Um, the polls indicate that most fellow citizens don't want either one of them to run. Um, right. Trump There's or Biden. No appetite for a rematch. Yeah. There's so, no appetite for a rematch. And and how, so how do, how do you read then the fact that the American public has no appetite for a rematch, but we may very well get a rematch? I think we're more likely than not to get a rematch. So people got to make a decision. Listen, years ago I had Ron Dellums come speak to one of my courses, and he said something that has stuck with me ever since, and that is in politics you have to make the best decision from the available options. Mm-hmm. And if it turns out that in November of 2024, the available options are Joe Biden and Donald Trump, people are going to have to set aside those other concerns and make the best decision for them based on the available options. And so the candidates themselves have to be able to demonstrate that notwithstanding the concerns that some people have, I am the best option and, and take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, Michael, a couple of things, and uh, I want to just run through these as, as swiftly as we can, and there's a lot to cover. Um, but I want mm-hmm. to get your take on this. It, it seems to me, and I, I have no crystal ball, obviously. I'm no prognosticator. I'm no soothsayer. I, I, don't, I, know, I don't know how this is all going to work out. But it seems to me when there's data and overwhelming data that the demos, um, that our fellow citizenry, has no appetite, uh, to use Michael's word, for either one of these candidates, that is the perfect um, storm, if you will, for a third-party candidate to pop up. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just telling you, watching history, this these are the occasions. This is what makes the ground fertile. We understand we have a relatively strong two-party system. One party's wigging out these days, but a relatively strong two-party system. But in this country, historically, uh, not very often, but historically, and in other countries, when you have data that suggests that neither candidate is well-liked, that becomes fertile ground for a third-party candidate to pop up. Again, I have no idea what may happen, but you take my point, do you not? No, I do. I think the problem, though, Tavis, is that you would have to have someone with a significant amount of wealth to be able to do that. Right. I think when you look at donors on both sides, they're pretty dedicated uh, to, to their sides and the candidates on their side. De- Democratic mega donors are not going to give to a progressive or a moderate-leaning Democrat when you have a Democrat in the White House. And Republican mega donors are not going to give to anyone outside of Trump or possibly uh, Ron DeSantis. And so you would need a Ross Perot-type figure with a substantial amount of personal wealth to be able to do that. And the only people I can think of are Michael Bloomberg and a few others. And those individuals aren't interested mm-hmm. in running uh, for, for president. And so I think, like Dr. Faulkner said, we're going to get, I believe, a, a rematch between Donald Trump and President Biden. Yep. So why, why is it, and I'm not naive, of course, Michael, in asking this question, but why is it facing one uh, indictment, uh, and for that matter, he's been arraigned already, as we all know, or, uh, indictment, indicted, arrested, and arraigned. That's one. There are four others still out there. There's Letitia James. So Alvin Bragg has made his move. There's Letitia James in the state of New York. There's Fannie Willis in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia. And there are two inside the Department of Justice, one about the Mar-a-Lago, doc- the, the documents at Mar-a-Lago, they ain't his documents, our documents at Mar-a-Lago, and the other, of course, January 6th. So there are four other pending indictments, and I suspect, as both of you do, I assume, 
that if not all four of those drop, some of those are going to drop. And we keep talking about Donald Trump as the presumptive Republican nominee with all of that stuff in front of him. And nobody seems to be dissuaded by that evidence that at some point the pressure on him will build. He will have to get out of this race. But nobody's saying that in every conversation I have, including this one, everybody assumes that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. I'm not saying, Michael, that you and Michael are wrong that everybody else is wrong. But it's just fascinating to me that we keep making that assumption with, with, with what we know is in front of this guy. Yeah, well, I think if you look at the the, the metrics and the data evidence uh, before the Alvin Bragg's uh, indictment and after, you will see a pretty steep increase, uh, Tavis, in support of Donald Trump from Republican voters. Yep. Uh, prior to that, a lot of evidence indicated that if Ron DeSantis would have announced pretty quickly he probably would have surpassed Trump. I don't see at this point any mathematical pathway, and not even just with publicly available data, but data that I've seen from the RNC. I have friends who work internally with Trump. I have some folks involved with DeSantis and his possible run. Mm -hmm. I've seen data across the board. And all of it indicates that to beat Trump is going to be an almost impossible odd through the primary process, which is why I say he is the presumptive nominee. And I think if some of those other indictments come, I actually think his support with, Repub with the Republican base will be further cemented. And as a Republican, you have to be able to pull some of those voters in a primary process in order to win some of those primary states. And I just don't see how, at least not at this point. So, Michael, you hear what you're Travis, let me, I just want to underline that real quick, because we were talking earlier about polls. I read a poll that came out uh, Tuesday, 71% of Republican voters think Donald Trump should be the nominee, even if he is convicted. Mm -hmm. So think about that for a second. Yeah. Even if he is convicted. So if that's the case, it's going to take a lot of problems to get to, to push that number down to a point where we don't see him as the presumptive nominee. I never thought that that would be the case, but I think that just tells you where Republican voters are right now. So let me... And so... So, so anyway, I just think that that, uh, that that's the really important metric that we all need to keep in mind. So, so they want this dude, even if he's guilty. So let's unpack that. I, I didn't mean to step on you, Michael. Sorry. Let's unpack that, Michael, since you went there. Uh, and again, I, I'm just I'm playing devil's advocate here, just trying to press. And in this instance, I'm really not playing devil's advocate. I'm raising a question uh, about the state of our democracy. Uh, the fragility of our democracy. Um, whether or not we, as American people, have gone off the rails. What does it say about the Republican Party? What does it say about this democracy? Uh, what does it say about the media? Take it any way you want to take it, Michael. You first, then Michael. That we are that we are having this conversation. <laughs> that that there's data that suggests that that there are a whole lot of people that want this guy to be the nominee. They're going to support this guy even if he's convicted in multiple cases. There are any number of ways to unpack it. But what, to your mind, Michael, does that say? I think it says that we're in real trouble as a democracy. I'm just deeply concerned about the what I believe to be, you know, dec and this has been building for decades now, but we are a civically ignorant electorate mm. that is more likely to select a president or a senator or a governor or something like that the same way we would the homecoming king or queen. It's really more about popularity and visceral feelings and not necessarily about qualifications and ability. And as a result of all that, I think we're in a position where anybody uh, with the right amount of financial and other backing who might in past generations be a non-starter, particularly 
as a third party candidate could actually do so. And I'm going to give you a name. And that is your boy, Tucker Carlson. Mm. He doesn't have the personal wealth, but he does have access to enough people that can put enough money in a pot for him to run as a third party candidate if he so chose. Now, I'm not saying he would, mm -hmm. but he has the, the unfortunately talented mix of communication skills and anger and ability to spark anger among voters around the country that he's somebody that I think you got to think about. So, Shamarco, two things for you. I'm watching my clock here. we got two minutes before news, traffic, and sports. We'll continue on the other side. Let me just uh, pivot for a second to get your take right quick since he, uh, it was his last comment about Tucker Carlson. Uh, you suggested earlier you didn't see anybody on the scene. Michael's point is well taken. Tucker doesn't have the money, but he's got the resources. He's got the access. He's got the name recognition. He's got the contacts. Your thoughts first on that, and then we'll, we'll circle back to the other question. Yeah, quickly, I, I don't think Tucker would. He, I do agree with Dr. Fontrell. He has the name ID, but I think about how quickly you would have to build the necessary operation at this point to become a legitimate candidate. I, I think people can di di divorce, in my personal opinion, a television personality versus someone they want to see leading the country. Hold up, hold up, Shermichael. Hold up, Shermichael. Hold up. That, that's okay. Donald Trump. That's Donald Trump, Shermichael. He pulled it off. He, he did pull it off, but I, I wouldn't put Tucker in that same category because Trump is now a former president. And, and, and I guess, Grant, but but he, but he wasn't, but he wasn't, but he wasn't when he, but he wasn't when he ran. It's the exact situation. You're talking about a guy who was a television personality who pulled it off. So if Donald Trump could do it, Tucker Carlson could make a credible run, perhaps. No, that, I think that's a fair point, and I, Dr. Fontrell probably would disagree with me on this, but. I just think that Donald Trump was an aberration in many ways. I, I don't see that being able to be replicated. Again, I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. I just don't see it. Yeah. Um, all right, let me do this. Let me do the news, the traffic, and the sports. Uh, update our audience on those important details when we come forward. We'll come back to this Tucker Carlson thing. Of course, we got, there's a lot more Tucker stuff to talk about. We haven't even gotten to the, the firing and all that, but there's new news on Tucker Carlson. There's uh, new news on, on Don Lemon. You'll love this if you haven't seen this. One black, one white, one conservative, one more liberal, one at Fox, one at CNN, and yet they both hired the same attorney to go get their money. Both of them got the same attorney to get their money. I ain't mad at them. Uh, when we come forward, more with Sir Michael and Michael and Tavis on KBLA Talk 1580. Singleton and Michael K. Fontroy are our guests in this hour. Sir Michael Singleton, host of his own program, The Sir Michael Singleton Show on Sirius XM. Uh, if you never checked it out, you should. I have. It's a great program. And Michael K. Fontroy, our friend from George Mason University, University, who we're delighted to have back on uh, our program, uh, professor and uh, leader of their fine uh, race and policy institute uh, at George Mason. Um, two things I want to just uh, close the circle on right quick, and we'll move forward here. Um, Shermichael, you did not get a chance to sound off. We'll we'll we'll, we'll leave the Tucker Carlson uh, issue aside. I take Michael's point. Um, to my question earlier that in moments like these where there's data that suggests that uh, the American people don't want either one of these old guys, these old white guys, to be frank, uh, uh, in a rematch, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden, the data suggests that. Um, uh, my point was, in case you've just tuned in, that when you have data that suggests that nobody likes either one of them, it, there's fertile ground, there's fertile territory, uh, perhaps for a third party candidate. Uh, and uh, into that uh, into that uh, uh, space uh, jumps uh, Michael Fontroy, suggesting that Tucker Carlson um, could uh, raise some money, uh, could make some noise. He's certainly telegenic. He certainly knows how to make an argument. He certainly has a base. He certainly has access to money, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, I was just making the point that stranger things have happened. Donald Trump was once a TV guy. And before you know it, this guy um, 
ends up in the White House. We'll digress on that for the moment about Tucker. Um, but I do want to get your take, Sir Michael, on the point that uh, Michael commented on and you didn't, which is what it says about our democracy that Donald Trump, with multiple indictments, with even convictions, according to the data, um, is still the preferred candidate of many people in this country. How do you read that? Because I, I can't imagine that, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that anybody would have taken this guy seriously with multiple indictments, multiple convictions, which may be forthcoming. But how do you read that? Uh, I think that Dr. Fontroy is correct. Uh, there's a group that I belong to. It's a bipartisan group of conservatives and, and liberals, very well-known people. I'm actually the youngest member of the group. Mm -hmm. And one of the experts is uh, Dr. Ann Applebaum. Dr. Fontroy may be familiar with her. She's a professor. She teaches at Oxford. And her specialization is in democracies. And she did a, a, a case study a few years ago and presented it to the group. And we, we talked about it to come up with some possible solutions. And what you saw, or what you are seeing, I should say, Tavis, is a decline in democracies and democratization across the globe. Mm -hmm. So not just in the United States. You're seeing this globally. And I think a, a lot of this is because you, you have a racial majority that is now seeing their numbers decline, in part because of a decrease in birth rates. Uh, I think that a lot of people are academically, intellectually behind because they don't have the skills to compete uh, in the current market that does indeed require advanced jobs. Remember, Trump made that quote, I love the poorly uneducated. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what we're seeing in this resentment of the progress, I don't mean in the political sense, but progress is in moving forward as far as more equity, racial equity, economic equity, educational equity. I think that's why you're you're seeing what we're seeing by a sizable percent, a third of our population. It is troubling, but I got to tell you, I believe that a lot of these people are older. I think they're going to slowly start to die off, and I think the democracy will be able to correct and save itself. We got very close, Tavis. Mm -hmm. We got very close during January 6th. But what we saw was that the institutions were able to preserve themselves. And I strongly believe as a younger person that we'll be able to move forward from this. It's going to be hard, but we'll be able to get there. Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, young people, Michael, back to you right quick. Um, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm, put you, I'm going to put you out here uh, on a limb right now, and you know this is on tape. We're live and we're on tape, so I'm going to play this back for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play this back for you in a year or so. Uh, but if you were a betting man, what say you about what turnout is going to look like if we see a rematch of Biden-Trump? Just writ large, what's your what's your best estimate, your best guess on turnout in that uh, rematch? If, if if that were to happen, I think I think it's going to be pretty low, and to Sir Michael's point, it's going to be overly weighted with older voters, which is good news for the Republicans and bad news uh, for the Democrats. And I would just add, you know. Sir Michael is right in that, you know, there is a particular age profile for some of the most virulent supporters of this anti-democracy piece that's taken hold in Western countries. But in the United States, man, I think that, that some of those folks now are the sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of some of those same folks that were fighting segregation in the 1960s. And, and so there's always a new thing that, that pops up that makes it more difficult for democracy to, to sort of flourish in the way that we, we, we think that it should. And this pro-authoritarian strain that's running through American, America's public discourse right now leaves me to wonder just how much uh, we can count on demographic change to, to make future change in that regard. I think that there are younger people 
Not as many, certainly not as many, but I think there are younger people who are being energized by this um, this pro-authoritarian movement that is pushing back against democracy, particularly, as Sir Michael pointed out, among those with less educational access and see themselves losing the country. And that, that worries me. Yeah, it, it, it worries me as well. Um, I just think, as I've said many times on this program, that our democracy is uh, in a very fragile state. Um, it reminds me of the song by Atlantic Star. It's a fragile situation. It can fall apart at any time. Uh, and I think that's kind of where we are. And I think uh, we do ourselves a great disservice to not consider that as we continue to preach this notion of American exceptionalism, even though the data uh, is incontrovertible on so many fronts that we are not who we uh, thought we were. Uh, and uh, we shall see in the coming years. I want, I want to just put a final point underneath what, uh, a final point on what Michael Fontoy, uh, Professor Fontoy, Dr. Fontoy just said, uh, and we'll come back to this in a couple of years, um, but you hear, his, you hear his take on the turnout, and I think he's right about this. If we see a rematch of two old white guys, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that plays well, I think, to the Republican base because they, they are an older party. Now, in many ways, we laugh all the time at the fact that their, their base is dying off faster than, faster than the Democratic base. That is true. The Republican base is older than the Democratic base. That is true. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, if you got two old white guys facing each other in a rematch, I think Michael's right. That, that reality in and of itself plays better for the Republican Party. And Democrats would have to do yeoman's work to make sure that their turnout uh, can, uh, over and against that Republican uh, turnout, uh, save the day. We will see. But I, I just love how his mind, that's why, he, that's why he teaches this stuff at George Mason. And that's why he runs that institute. He's, he's got his finger on the pulse. And we will see uh, a year or so down the road whether or not that turns out to be the case, assuming that the nominees are Joe Biden uh, and Donald Trump. And everybody at the moment seems to expect that is going to happen. That said, we mentioned Tucker Carlson earlier. I, I mentioned um, uh, after news and traffic and sports that what's fascinating for me is that, you know, again, one guy's white. I'm talking now about Trump. I'm talking about um, uh, Tucker and, and Don Lemon. So one white, um, one black, uh, one at Fox, one at CNN, one conservative, one more liberal, both of them in trouble and both hired the same lawyer to make these networks run them their coins. I found that to be a little bit funny. Uh, Shermichael, what do you make of that? I mean, look, Travis, I got to say, I, I'm not surprised. I'm looking at the, this guy's background. He got Megan Kelly. Remember, Megan Kelly, Kelly still had, I believe, over $30 million remaining. And he got in it. In her contract. And he got and it. he got all of it. Which, yeah. Man, that, that was a big deal in media. And as someone who can tell you, I, I've had CNN contracts. I've had MSNBC contracts. Anchored a show for MSNBC on Peacock last year. Those contracts, man, and, and I like to consider myself a pretty astute business person. And they make it really difficult, Tavis, to negotiate changes when it comes to the money. Mm. So the fact that this guy was able to do that for Megan, I thought to myself, man, okay, Don has hired him and Tucker has hired him. They're going to make sure that they get their money. And, <laughs> and I think the network's ultimately going to have to pay for it. And I'll say really quickly, I was having a conversation with someone at Fox who's close to some board members. And he told me that they actually are negotiating with Tucker right now, trying to figure out what the finances could look like. They have a clause in this contract where he wouldn't be able to compete for, I think, like a year or so. I read that. I asked my friend. He said, yeah, that actually is true. So they're trying to work all of that stuff out, and I think they'll, they'll figure it out. But at the end of the day, I think Don and Tucker both will, will get their money. I think Tucker, though, in the long term, is going to have an easier time in building his own new thing in the digital space. There's mm -hmm. an audience for it. I think that ecosystem will support him. 
I am wondering what the next step will be for Don. Yep. Uh, to that point, Michael, um, Don has his fans. We all do. We are, I say all the time, <clears throat> excuse me, in this media business, and Don, I know it after 30 years, we are all an acquired taste. Some folk like you and some folk ain't going to like you. And don't, don't, take it, don't take it personally. We are all acquired taste when it comes to media personalities. So Don has his own following and Don has his own detractors. Uh, but I think Sir Michael is right in that regard, that Tucker is going to have a much easier time, whatever that means, of establishing a media base than Don will. Um, but how do you read what the uh, what the options are for Don Lemon? And I'm asking that primarily because whatever you think of Don Lemon, and God knows I've had my issues with him over the course of his career and my career, and we know each other. Uh, I've had my issues, but I, I, I it, it it always hurts me when I see us lose a black anchor on any desk. So your thoughts, uh, Michael Fontroy? Well, I think he's he's going to be all right in the long run if he's willing to do something beyond just anchoring uh, a, bra- a newscast. Uh, Tucker has a broader space in which he can play. Uh, Don Lemon has a, a tighter space. But there are some ways in which, in this new digital era, there are ways for you to carve out some space for yourself that can give you so, uh, a, a continued career with some meaning. And so I think, you know, you can see him doing the podcast thing. You, he, he may do some form of what he did in the, in the primetime space online and grow from there until he can land his, his, his feet somewhere. Now, there is a big difference between Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson that goes beyond just the obvious. Tucker Carlson has already been offered two jobs, one by One American News Network and the other by RT, mm-hmm. uh, Russia Today. And so, you know, he, he, he has people already throwing opportunities his way. Don Lemon is going to have to be a bit more patient because I think his 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 world is a little more nuanced. It's going to take a little more time to figure out his next move. But I think ultimately they both will be able to continue doing something approximating what they did before, though it won't be to the same size audiences. Uh, but but they'll both be fine as far as I can tell. More when we come forward. I guess you're Michael Singleton and Michael K. Fontroy on KBLA Talk 1580. Watching my time here, a few more things I want to get to in this hour, uh, but primarily I want to focus on this. Um, I, I found this to be uh, just outrageous on a number of levels, um, uh, Michael and Sir Michael. Uh, but I want to uh, take your temperatures on this, Sir Michael Singleton and Michael Fontroy. Um, so last night, uh, a letter was released uh, by Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr., who told the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, that he was declining its invitation to testify about ethics rules for the Supreme Court. In an accompanying statement on ethics practices, all nine of the justices under mounting pressure for more stringent reporting requirements at the court insisted that the existing rules around gifts, travel and other financial disclosures are sufficient. Never mind all the drama that Clarence Thomas is in right now, which we'll talk about in our second hour. All nine justices said that they believe that their existing rules around gifts, travel, and other financial disclosures are sufficient. And based on that, John Roberts declined Judiciary Committee uh, invitation from uh, Dick Durbin out of Illinois to testify before the committee. But then he writes this. The Chief Justice writes that um, these appearances before the committee are, I'm quoting now, exceedingly rare as one might expect in light of separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence, close quote. What that means is that John Roberts told the Judiciary Committee, uh, Shermichael, to kick rocks. 
I'm not coming to testify before you, despite all the evidence that we're looking at it right now about Clarence Thomas taking gifts and trips, et cetera, et cetera. They just told the Congress, we ain't coming to talk about it. And we think that our rules are good enough. That is stunning to me, Sir Michael. Yeah, I mean, it's not only Justice Thomas, but we just found out, I believe, a day or two ago in some new reporting that Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, also apparently has similar issues with individuals. I think the law firm, uh, paying for some land he was trying to sell for two years at, mm-hmm. at a ridiculous amount of money. And, and so I, I do think this is a problem. It was just unveiled, I believe, uh, yesterday, a potential new bill out of the Senate uh, that titled the Supreme Court Code of Conduct Act. And essentially what it would do is to try to implement some type of uh, rules and regulations to, to make the Supreme Court have to file and pay attention to these types of complaints, uh, allow Congress the opportunity to have investigatory authority over these types of complaints. And and one of the things that I think is fascinating about this, the justice, which I'm not surprised by, I think this is some political play here, partially legal, partially political, the play on, well, we got separation, and so I really shouldn't be coming before the legislative branch to discuss the happenings of the judicial branch. But I would remind the chief justice, who I respect, to read the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The legislative branch is supposed to be representative of the people. It is supposed to be the branch that, quite frankly, does have the authority to check the executive and judicial in extreme cases. And, Tavis, this is one such case. And so my hope is that Republicans would join Democrats and say, we need to have um, a cleanup with the Supreme Court. We cannot allow justices to operate like this when people are supposed to respect them and trust them to be nonpartisan jurists on cases. Well, how is that possible when you're flying on jets or having people pay $2 million for a house that's only worth 800000 We'll get Michael K. Fontroy's response to that when we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Sir Michael and Michael on KBLA Talk 15. Don't forget in our third hour today, uh, a tribute to Harry Belafonte, the entire hour. You don't want to miss that in our second hour conversation about the transition interpreting justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. So we'll get into uh, these two men who could not be more different uh, in our second hour. So we'll talk a lot about Clarence Thomas in just a few moments here. Uh, Michael Fontoy, speaking of Clarence Thomas and the Supreme Court, uh, as I said moments ago, uh, John Roberts told the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, kick rocks, I'm not coming to testify. We think everything is cool over here. He's hiding behind separation of powers, as Sir Michael said. He's hiding behind judicial independence. But I asked you, sir, what about integrity? What about the accountability of the court? And in, in addition to that, what about the, the, the sort of connection to the American people? Mm-hmm. So this shows a stunning lack of self-awareness from all of the justices, which leads me to wonder, is there more to the story here with some of these other justices that, we, that haven't ah. yet been okay? <laughs> Why are they hiding behind this? And consider this for a second. Uh, just last week, uh, a poll came out uh, with the News Hour and Marist Institute, and they found that about 62% of Americans say they have either not very much confidence in the court or no confidence at all in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. That's an extraordinarily high number for the one institution of our national government that tends to be more favorably viewed than Congress or the president. And so I, I just think that the Supreme Court justices themselves are not paying attention to the, the fact that they alone have such a lack of accountability 
and transparency that it, it erodes the confidence that we have in them as an institution. And so yeah. I, I think Congress is going to have to pass some legislation to get this fixed. Here's the exit question uh, for both of you. Uh, Michael Fontroy, you first. Uh, in your lifetime, um, what do you think the odds are that we will see some meaningful Supreme Court reform? By that, I mean term limits or expanding the size of the court or something else. Um, I think we're ramping up toward that. But in your lifetime, what, 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 do you, what, what do you think the chances are of that happening, Michael? I think it will happen. I mean, if I had to put odds on it, I'd say it's somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range. I just don't think what we're doing right now is sustainable. Sure, Michael? I would agree with Dr. Fontroy. Something has to change here because we need to restore trust in our judicial system. And we as black people know that more than anybody else. Shermichael Singleton is host of the Shermichael Singleton Show on Sirius XM. I repeat once again, if you've not heard it, you should check it out. It's an amazing program, uh, and I'm always honored to have him share his insights and thoughts on this program. Shermichael, thank you for your time, sir. All the best to you. Thank you, Travis. I'll be seeing you soon, man. I'll be in California soon. Look us up, man. You, we're right here on Crenshaw. You can't just ask anybody in the neighborhood, where is KBLA? They'll point, they'll point the building out to you. So come, come holler this on, on Crenshaw when you're here. Uh, Michael, it's been a long time since you have been uh, to Southern California, so you got to come see us as well. He's professor and founding director of the Race, Politics, and Policy Center at George Mason University. Uh, Michael, thank you for your insight, sir, as always. My pleasure, man. Talk to you later. Take care. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports, we're glad about it, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Theodore Pendergrass on KBLA Talk 1580, Teddy Bear. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it is good when somebody loves you back. I'm not sure that uh, Clarence Thomas loves us back in the way that Thurgood Marshall loved us back. We're going to talk about it. We're going to unpack it in this hour with our guest, Daniel Keel. In this hour, a conversation about the transition Interpreting justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas, the two men could not be more different. I will avoid the metaphor of uh, as different as black and white. Leave that alone for now. And just say that the replacement of Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas back in 1991 has proven to be particularly momentous. Not only did it shift the ideological balance of the court, it was inextricably entangled uh, with the persistent American dilemma uh, of race. Um, and as you well know, I think race is uh, perhaps the most intractable issue in this country. I digress on that for the moment. Uh, I've been excited about this conversation. I look forward right now to commencing a dialogue with author and Professor Daniel Keel. Professor Keel, good to have you on this program, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you, and uh, thank you for the time. A lot to talk about. Glad we've got the hour to unpack it. So uh, just uh, as I often tell guests, uh, you're probably used to talking in sound bites. We've got an hour. We want to work this thing out, so take your time, uh, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, try to figure out what this transition has been all about from uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. I'm always fascinated, as an author myself, always fascinated by the backstory of why uh, writers, in your case, uh, professors as well, decide to research in certain lanes. What is it about this journey, this transition uh, between or from Marshall to Thomas that so interests you to spend all this time researching it? Sure. There's a few things that I think I would point to that connect to my own life experiences. The first thing is, what is it about school desegregation and school justice that draws me. And I think that I look back at my own schooling experiences here in Memphis and look, draw some lessons about 
you know, I grew up in the aftermath of desegregation and was schooling, schooling in the 80s and 90s and diverse classrooms or diverse schools, but not diverse classrooms. And I don't know that I was really processing through that as a kid, but I definitely look back on it and see the complexities of trying in a diverse community to create schooling justice. Mm -hmm. And I think my schools would be held up as, you know, exemplars of that, but I don't think my experiences necessarily bear that out. And so that's kind of what drew me into, you know, education law and, and, and educational justice as something to spend my time on, but more directly on the topic of justices Marshall and Thomas. I teach a course here at the University of Memphis Law School called Education and Civil Rights, and we trace, you know, sort of the lead up to Brown versus Board of Education and spend probably um, a lot of time on the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. That's a sort of central case study of the course. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we, you know, I'm assigning cases like a, like a law school course. And I often am utilizing concurrences and dissents from the Supreme Court on, you know, the important topics that are happening in the post-Brown experience. And I'm biased on this because it's my area of study, but I think that so much of American citizenship, the questions, important questions of American citizenship are tied up in that post-Brown story. How do you exist? How do you uh, account for undoing legal segregation using the very institutions, schools that had, you know, been so important to creating the oppressive society that existed, you know, before or at least was allowed to exist by law before Brown versus Board of Education. And so in doing that course, I would end up pairing opinions, not with any sort of intent to do so, just because that was the way that the post-Brown arc of the story went. And I sometimes would end up pairing an opinion from Justice Marshall with an opinion from Justice Thomas. And my students would react to, to that juxtaposition really strongly. Mm. I think it's probably because, if I'm being honest, a lot of the students would self-select into my course are probably pretty skeptical of Justice Thomas's view on these kinds of questions, and they would see the um, contrast, but they would also see the, um, on some level, the merits of the argument that Justice Thomas was making in the context of our broader course. And so it was really kind of their inspiration you know, and their excitement that got me thinking, like, maybe there's more to this than just, you know, these are the, the at that time, the two black justices that we've had, and they obviously are very different from one another. Um, but the complexity of their thought juxtaposed against one another, I think, is, it, it's, you know, it really does touch on so many questions of American citizenship. Mm, that's a great foundation. Now we can take off. Thank you for that. Uh, and let's take sure. off. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, we'll start broad and we'll, we'll, we'll get more specific as we move through this hour. Um, but I'm fascinated by your framing uh, of the post-Brown story of America. Uh, we, we could spend hours, of course, and you're a law professor, so you do this yeah. every day. So we could spend hours mm -hmm. just on this one question. I don't have hours. I have this hour. I don't have hours, plural. But before we get too deep in the other stuff, specifically uh, interpreting uh, justice from, from Marshall to Thomas and the juxtaposition of their cases and what their students see and what you've written in this text, my, my initial question here is um, how would you frame whatever you think is the post-Brown story of America, Brown v. Board. Ooh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I am grateful that we have an hour, but yes, this would take many more, many more hours on this on this particular question alone. Um, I think that the question that's being asked after Brown is the question of coexistence and multiracial democracy. Mm. Um, one thing that I um, really come back to, especially in the last five or six years, is something that Thurgood Marshall said in uh, when he was lawyer Marshall in the Cooper versus Aaron case, which is connected to the Little Rock Nine and school desegregation in, in Little Rock. And he's arguing, you know, so what's happening, a little bit of background in that case, the school board in Little Rock was asking for a delay after um, the year of the Little Rock Nine had gone so with, with, with so much controversy and, co- and confrontation. And um, Thurgood Marshall's arguing against that delay. And he's saying something along the lines of this country can't continue to exist if people's resistance to coexistence is going to be allowed to divert the courts and the justice system from enforcing clear rights. Mm-hmm. And here we had clear rights of desegre- you know, of, of access to schools and it was being denied based on, you know, essentially open resistance to it because, you know, we didn't want to. And Justice Marshall was, yes, he was obviously a strong advocate for black rights and for racial justice. But the argument that he was making in this particular moment, and yes, it's partially about the audience, right? He's speaking to nine white men on the Supreme Court and, you know, wants to speak to them in some way. But He's not making a racial justice argument. He's making a future of this country argument Mm -hmm. that if we allow the open resistance to coexistence to govern, then, um, you know, we're going down a really, really dangerous path. And I think that that's such a powerful statement about what really was at stake in the post-Brown in the post-Brown world. And, you know, there's a lot of specifics about it, you know, the relationship of local government to, to federal, federal government, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, obviously the educational questions that arise and, and the role of the judiciary. There's a ton of things that also mm-hmm. go on, but I think at its core, that's what I think that story yeah. is about. And, um, and it's happening in schools, which are the, you know, there's a recent case that referred to schools as the nurseries of democracy, the place where we, you know, where we become citizens, where we learn to become citizens, where we learn to exist in a, you know, in some instances, though not as many as probably it ought to be, in a multiracial, multiethnic, multi-everything um, community. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot. Uh, again, I'm glad we have the hour, as uh, you said a moment ago, to unpack this. Uh, let me just say this, a couple of things before we move forward here. One, um, pardon the pun, but the jury, to my mind, is still out on that question. The jury is still out yep. as to whether or not we can peacefully coexist in a multiracial uh, democracy. The jury is still out on that question as to whether or not we can, in fact, peacefully coexist in a multiracial democracy. I want to interrogate that notion as we move through this hour. The other thing I want to interrogate with uh, Professor Daniel Keel is why schools were then and still now at the epicenter of that debate. I mean, think of all the spaces and all the places in this country, all the places and all the spaces in this uh, experiment in democracy, as I prefer to call it. Um, and and schools uh, continue to be the epicenter 
of so many of these contentious and momentous, these critical debates. Why schools? Um, you ever thought about that? I want to ask that question. Why schools? And then, of course, we'll get into the, the, the sweet spot, as it were, the meat of this conversation, that juxtaposition, as he put it, between Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas and how we interpret justice uh, from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. As you can tell, we got a whole lot to talk about on KBLA Talk 1580.